Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 8th, the I'm from the government and I'm here to help edition. I'm Emily Bazelon, staff writer for the New York Times Magazine. Happy New Year, everybody. Joining me in Washington is John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation. Hey, John. Hello, Emily. David is out, still gallivanting. Weeks of vacation apparently weren't enough for him. No, actually, I think he is working. But in any case, it doesn't matter because we are in the excellent company of Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent. Hey, Jamel. Hello. Hello. Okay, so on this week's show, I'm hosting Watch Out, Everyone. We will talk about the state of the Republican presidential race. I happily lost track of it over the vacation, but it is with us. And it is actually less than a month, John informs me, from an actual voter casting an actual ballot, if that's something you can say about the Iowa caucuses. Our second topic will be Obama's new effort to curb gun sales, what it says about his flexing of executive muscle and the ways in which gun control has really beset his presidency. And for our third topic, we have an extra special guest, our boss, or at least Slate's boss, Jacob Weisberg, who is chair of the Slate Group and the author of a new book on Ronald Reagan, which is what we're going to talk about. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, and on Slate Plus, we'll talk about the armed resistors who have declared the federal government to be a tyranny and occupied some federal buildings in Oregon. Jamal has been writing about that. Okay, before we start, I have an announcement. For the past year, Slate's podcast, The Gist, has been coaching one of its listeners, Frank Kennedy, about how to become a great storyteller with some help from someone who's won the Story Slam contest that the moth does 20 times. This is a person named Matthew Dix. Hey, oh, I didn't know that. Matthew is a fan of the Gap Fest. Oh, that's so great. Okay, excellent. All right. Just listeners first heard about Frank Kennedy's story, which is about raising a son with autism, in a voicemail that he sent to the gist. But how has the story changed as he's preparing it for the storytelling stage? You will find out if you show up on Friday, January 15th and join Story Collider and The Gist at the Crane Theater in New York City's East Village. Mike Pesca, who is, of course, the beloved host of The Gist, will also treat you to a story of his own. And there'll be a couple other guests. And Slate Plus members are invited to join Mike and Matthew Dix and the storytellers for a complimentary happy hour before the show upstairs at the KGB bar. For a ticket link and all the information you need to do any of this, please visit slate.com slash live. First topic. Okay. John says that there are 24 days to go until the Iowa caucuses, which I guess is something to celebrate. John, can you take this away and tell us a little bit about the state of the Republican race? One thing that's hit me recently is that we spent so much time, or maybe I spent so much time saying, look, the 
the voting's not for a million years away, and all these things don't matter. And now, you know, the voting's really close, so I have to come up with something else to say. Um, <laughs> there's uh, bummer how that works. Yeah. So basically what we have is we have Iowa and then we have kind of the rest of the contest. What's happening in Iowa is Ted Cruz is leading by about four points in the average of the polls. Donald Trump uh, disputes that. He thinks he's winning in Iowa. And there is a contest between those two to see who becomes in first. And there is also a contest to pre-spin the results in Iowa, both between Cruz and Trump, but then also for the third place finishing because – you can make a case that whoever finishes third actually might see or get a leg up because there's a second competition going on. There's the Trump-Cruz competition, but then there's the competition of everybody else to be the alternative to Trump and Cruz. This, the If you want to break it down. I, I would like to stop talking about lanes, but I'm going to do it here anyway. So well, you have I a wanted cru- you actually to tell me whether this is the outsider insider lanes that we've been preparing for. The problem with the lanes is, you, okay, so you have the outsider lane, and that's supposed to include Cruz and Trump. But Cruz is a senator, and I know he's not like Mr. Cloakroom. But, I mean, he's more of an insider than Fiorina and Carson and Trump. So calling him an outsider isn't quite right. But he gets the votes of evangelicals and Tea Party folks who – don't like Washington at all, and he gets it in part because he's been in Washington trying to blow up the system. Then on the insider, or not the insider lane, but the establishment lane, you have everybody from John Kasich to Marco Rubio, and Marco Rubio's politics are more conservative than John Kasich, and he certainly doesn't want to be called a a member of the establishment and kind of wants to wriggle out of the establishment lane. On the other hand, his best hope in life is that there's a consolidation among Kasich, Christie, Bush, Rubio, that everybody consolidates behind him, and then he becomes, in the end, the alternative to Trump. So coming in third in Iowa might be a thing you'd want to do if you are Rubio, Christie, or, or Jeb Bush. John Kasich doesn't doesn't have a chance to do and that. And at the moment, Rubio's way ahead of those other guys. Not, not, not really. Not way ahead. He is, he's modestly ahead. Okay. I just meant in Iowa. I was looking at, like, he has 12% and they have, like, 2%. Well, Bush has, like, 4%. Okay. Uh, this has been it's been like a day since I checked, so you know, uh, fact check me here. But I think it's Rubio has about eleven to twelve percent national averages, followed by Bush with four percent, Kasich with like two or three, and Christie with with two or three. You have the actual result that will happen, but then you have all of the pre-spinning, which is important here because everybody who doesn't like Ted Cruz that I talked to in Iowa is saying, "Oh, he's going to win. Oh, he's going to win by a huge amount." And the reason, of course, they're doing that is to set expectations so high. That when he comes in under them, everybody will hopefully say, well, he didn't do as well as he was supposed to do. And this was a state that was supposed to be great for him because it has so many social conservative evangelical voters. And he worked so hard in the grassroots. And all despite all of his efforts, he couldn't do as well. This is sort of like 1996, where the story coming out of Iowa was Lamar Alexander, who had come in third because Dole didn't do as well as possible. Everybody felt that Buchanan, who came in second, was never going to be the party's nominee. So it meant, hey, Lamar Alexander, maybe he's the guy who might get the nomination. That lasted for about 22 hours and a half uh, when he went to New Hampshire, didn't do as well there as, as people had thought coming out of Iowa, and then his campaign folded in Florida. But Anyway, that's the kind of, we're getting into this, the spin is getting even more out of control in advance of the voting because everybody's trying to get us to sort of write narratives that then when the numbers come in will bump up against whatever the reality is in the numbers. So here's my question about Ted Cruz because if you – as you were just saying, if you kind of take Donald Trump out of the equation just for a moment, he's the leader right now. Jamel, can Ted Cruz really be the Republican nominee for president even though everyone in Washington cannot stand him? You know, I think it's possible, and I think you can't take Donald Trump out of the equation when talking about Cruz's viability as, as if not a consensus candidate and someone everyone can kind of get behind. And that is, if John mentioned the expectations game, this goes as much for for everyone in the race as it does for for Cruz. And if New Hampshire comes and Rubio doesn't place third, then Rubio all of a sudden looks looks much weaker. He's he's underperforming relative to where he should be. And if this establishment lane continues to either underperform or be divided, and Cruz is sort of the only one with sufficient support and is going head-to-head with Trump and can kind of survive Trump, 
then Cruz has a case to make to the rest of the party, which is to say, I am the only person who can plausibly beat Trump. And the thing is, although you do not like me, I am more or less an orthodox Republican down the line. You don't have to worry about me deviating in a big way like you would with someone like Trump, like you would even with someone like Kasich. I ignore my affect, and I'm basically on your side, as evidenced by my long and uh, my long establishment resume going back to the George W. Bush campaign. So I like this because it goes with my theory about Trump, which is he's not going to be the nominee, but he's going to totally scramble the race, not just like so far, but he's going to change who the winner would have been. So I credit him with knocking out Jeb Bush. I like your theory, Jamel, that Cruz seems like the less completely unacceptable candidate to the Republican establishment. And then there are these Trump ads that he released this week where, John, as you were writing, it's really like a sort of keep out sign to Mexicans and Muslims. Very foreboding imagery about ISIS fighters and the San Bernardino shooters and then these dark crowds of people crossing what the ad calls, quote, our southern border, but which turns out to be crossing into Morocco. So right away, there was like a fact check of this ad. And um, and Trump said, oh, his people said, well, we meant it to be somewhere else to show how out of control our own southern border could hypothetically get, which seemed ludicrous to me. But then, as usual, I feel like I don't think it matters. It doesn't matter that this ad is based on this misuse of this image, does it? No, I think the next, I mean, the thing that will change the race and create, I mean, I still, I think Donald Trump has some pretty strong cards to play in New Hampshire and South Carolina and basically the rest of the Republican voting country. Now it'll depend on the, you know, when he gets, by the time we get to the 15th of March in Florida and Ohio, his fortunes will depend on how he's done in those previous states. But he's got a real challenge in Iowa, but he doesn't have much of one in other places. And at least in New Hampshire, it seems like it's pretty solid. And that's in part because his following, they're not uh, undone by any of the things that that the uh, press has thought would undo Trump. And so the next thing that might actually undo him would be losing, since his entire campaign is built on the idea that he's a winner. It's sort of an unimaginable to imagine him dealing with the loss, although, of course, he'll just like figure out some way to make it seem totally natural that he lost if he wants to. His what he would do is what other people will do, which is just say, well, I, you know, Iowa nominated Huckabee and Santorum and they never went anywhere. And Pat Robertson came in second in 1988. And it's a it's a state that has a fixation with um, kind of these pet rock candidates who appeal to evangelicals. And it's not really it doesn't really tell us anything. So they'll just which is what worries a lot of people in Iowa politics, because they worry that if it's they have a third candidate who wins the caucuses in a row who then doesn't go on to do well, that people will just say, oh, Iowa is this quirky, weird thing at the beginning of the process, and we can discount it. Yeah, well, maybe then they could let people vote instead of having to show up for hours at caucuses. (laughs) Even though I had fun at the caucus I went to, low, I believe, these eight years ago. Okay, Jamel, last question for you. Voters are saying that terrorism and national security are now the most important issue to them. In Iowa, 61% say that that's their top decision-making criteria ahead of the economy. In New Hampshire, it's 66%. So I got to think that this helps Trump. Who else does it help? In the in the context of the Republican primary, it definitely does look like it helps Trump. I'm sort of the opinion that foreign policy matters don't it's hard to say that they help anyone because oftentimes the distinctions aren't as as great. I mean, this race might be an exception since there does seem to be a big difference of philosophical opinion between Rubio and Cruz. Um, I, I think the, it's more it's more often that foreign policy disqualifies candidates. It's sort of a thing that that cuts people out. And so, in the Republican race. I don't think anyone really has to worry too much because everyone relative to what Republican voters say they want is is roughly sounding the same kind of, you know, I will do more to defeat the terrorists. And, the, and I mentioned the philosophical differences. Those come in, you know, where Rubio says the best way to beat terrorists is to be aggressive. And Cruz says, well, you know, you're, that aggressiveness got us Iraq and Libya. And then you want to open up the borders and let potentially dangerous refugees from these war-torn countries come come here. So I will beat the terrorists by being more judicious or, or, or less eager to use force. But it all kind of comes down to 
the same pit, the same kind of pitch to voters. I think the import is much greater for the Democratic side. I think if Democratic voters uh, also very much care about foreign policy, then it's an issue where Bernie Sanders is, I think, very vulnerable. Um, and you've seen this in the debates for, or the you know the the twelve Americans who watch the debates have seen this in the debates. <laughs> the twelve who watch particularly on Saturday nights, which is when the Democrats lately like to debate. Right, on on those Saturday night debates. But Sanders just has a hard time answering those questions. When when John moderated the debate and and the first chunk was on the attack in Paris, it was very clear that Sanders was looking for a way to kind of like pivot back to broad themes and not discuss specifics. I think that if Democratic voters feel that Sanders is not equipped to handle that part of being president, it, it could hurt him, especially as we move on uh, beyond Iowa and New Hampshire into states where there are more moderate and conservative Democrats. John, do you want to jump in on that one? I think Jamel's right. We were talking so much about Iowa with respect to the Republicans, and the big question with Republicans is, um, will Donald Trump be able to bring in a whole new class of people into the process in in Iowa. Every cycle, this is kind of the fantasy of various candidates. They're going to expand the size of the electorate. But in Democratic politics, that actually happened in 2008. The previous, in 2004, the 124, I think, thousand people participated in the Iowa caucuses. In 2008, Obama, plus Edwards and and Clinton, but certainly Obama, helped grow that to 240,000. And what interests me, and this is a purely kind of like political tactical thing, but it's just like how many people are going to turn out for the Democrats? And will Sanders have learned the lesson? I mean, he's obviously had grassroots success. He's he's gotten more small dollar donors to give to him than even Obama got, I think, in 2011. Well, how does that translate in reality? Like, does that can, – can Sanders actually sort of surprise people by turning out a kind of grassroots army in Iowa that is a little bit similar to what Obama did in 08? This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right. Onward. Second topic. President Obama shed some tears this week when he made an announcement about some new executive actions he is planning to take to in hopes of reducing the number of gun deaths across the country. I have to say, I really understood this burst of emotion because a couple of years ago, I interviewed a um, group of survivors of gun deaths, and I just found listening to them to be really heartbreaking. Um, Obama's provisions, these executive actions he's taking, they're modest. They are making it a little harder on people who sell guns at gun shows um, in the sense of maybe nudging them towards acting like actual gun sellers who have to conduct background checks. So if you give out business cards or you sell your guns in the original packaging, maybe you should think about acting like a licensed gun dealer. And then Obama wants to spend another $500 million on treating mental illness. He wants the FBI to hire about 200 more people to help process background checks in a timely way. But Congress has to approve money for those changes. So what are we really talking about here? I mean, is this a symbolic act by an incredibly frustrated president, Jamel, or is it something that is really going to make a material difference in gun sales across the country? 
I think it's more the former than the latter. What is interesting to me is for a long time, the refrain you've heard from the National Rifle Association and its allies is that we don't need new gun laws. We need to enforce the gun laws we have. And this is what essentially this is. It's Obama putting greater priority um, on enforcing the gun laws we have and in uh, pushing federal law enforcement agencies and others responsible for background checks to be more thorough and diligent when it, when it comes to these internet purchases. And the response you've had, you've seen from the National Rifle Association and from its Republican allies is that this is a step too far, that this is an attack on the Second Amendment, that this is, I I, want to say someone referred to it as tyranny. I might just be like conflating everything together. It's a good day to have everyone tarred with a brush of tyranny. Right, right. I mean, we can reliably assume someone has called it tyranny. Well, Paul Ryan Ryan basically said this is an infringement upon liberty, which is another way of saying that. I would call this a clar- uh, another clarifying moment, at least in the politics of gun reform and gun control, that it, it demonstrates that even when you when you do what opponents of gun control say we ought to do, which is enforce the laws already on the books, you have this kind of backlash. And so, in that case, what happens if you are a proponent of gun control is why not why not just work to build the groundwork to go for the gold? Um, I think this is sort of the assuming. Uh, proponents of gun control can ever get the political power it would take to really do something on either the federal or in various states. I think the categorical rejection of anything from the unregulated gun side encourages a sort of more maximal thinking from the gun control side because there's there's no compromise to be had anymore. And when there's no compromise to be had, you might as well just pursue your interests in in their purer form, if not their purest form. Going back just to the emotionalism of President Obama, somebody who has talked to him recently reminded me that, particularly when it came to the victims at Sandy Hook, in the school, the first graders, that Obama went up and visited and spent time with all of those families. Yes. Imagine the toll on you if you had to be the consoler of 21 families. I think 26 were killed, but I think it was 21 kids. Imagine how that would churn you up. Yes. And so I think, I mean, it's being an armchair psychologist, but I think having had to do that duty was, you know, that rang true to me, the idea that that's what was springing forth when he he broke, uh, when he started crying in his announcement. This is a pretty modest, the, the reaction from the opposition notwithstanding, this is a pretty modest set of proposals. Very modest when you think about the full range, right? The full range of proposals on gun control include licensing handguns, not done, banning. Taking them away, banning Australia. A, a, assault weapons. I mean, there are all kinds of, right, the Australian gun buybacks. So on the scale of one to 10, this is pretty small, but it's also the, the most he can do. And there's just this em- emotional sense that he's going to do every last thing he possibly can, even if it's small. And even if sometimes it's rhetorical, because I think he feels like the the sense of impotence uh, in the face of the emotion. It's one thing to feel impotent about global warming, um, another issue that he's really going to try and do as much as possible on. But it but it's another to feel impotent when you've stared into the face of twenty one families of first graders. So here's my devil's advocate question. I mean, I think you're completely right that this is personal for the president. And I also wonder if it's making our famously rational President Obama irrational in the sense that this has been a politically costly issue for him. He spent a lot of time working on it a couple of years ago when perhaps just to, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but maybe immigration reform or some kind of climate ch- change um, package could have passed. And we're at a situation where just in October, a CBS New York Times poll showed that 92% of all Americans favor background checks for all gun buyers. And yet that is completely out of reach because of the bizarre politics of gun control and gun safety in this country. And It seems to me that the progress that's being made on this front is in the states and not at all on the federal level. And I part of me thinks that the rational thing to do is just drop it 
Jamel, what do you think? So I, I agree with you that I think mo- most of the advancement on this is being done at the states. But to me, that's a reason to continue for the president and other federal leaders, national leaders to talk about it. It's not that governors and mayors and so on and so forth directly take their cues from party leaders. But party leaders do shape kind of the issue environment for the entire party down the ranks. And so... If President Obama is talking about this, if he doesn't seem to suffer a major political hit, if Hillary Clinton talks about this and gets elected president next year, that fact, I think, will encourage Democrats in places where it's viable to push forward with gun control and make it sort of an important issue priority for the party again. And so maybe you never get national gun control, but maybe the next time Virginia has a Democratic governor and a Democratic Senate and a Democratic or Democratic General Assembly, maybe then Virginia gets a little gun control. Maybe if if Ohio gets to unified Democratic control, maybe it gets gun control, right? So I, I tend to be skeptical of the idea that the, the bully pulpit can push Congress, but I do very much think it can work to influence intra-party dynamics. And there, it is important for Obama to keep on, keep on talking, keep on keeping on. In terms of all the things the president could have proposed, um, this was at the very much lower end of the scale. I don't just mean in terms of what he had legal power to do, but in terms of the the real menu of things you could – if you were a real gun grabber, this would not even get you into the gun grabbing club. But the response, both from Paul Ryan who said that this shows that the president never respected the right to safe and legal gun ownership. I mean – that's just not it's just not true. I mean, the president, both in what he says, including in his announcement where he said the right to bear arms is enshrined in the Constitution, which lots of people on the gun grabbing side would say is still up for debate. So Obama believes as a matter of, of constitutional law, you're, you can uh, keep and bear arms and own guns and also then explicitly said that this is a part of our our culture. So and then in what he offered was not you know, I mean, I know they don't like it, but but again, in terms of all of the ways that you could show a lack of respect for those who believe in the Second Amendment and who are rightful gun owners, it, it, this was just pretty small. But the response back was just so huge. And then Ted Cruz raised money off of it, putting up a, a web page where the president was portrayed as basically a jackbooted thug with the riot helmet, the dark, ominous-looking page, and basically it says, Obama's coming for your guns. So if that's the response that comes in the light of this relatively modest set of proposals, there's not really a, a middle ground to um, to have a conversation here in this election year. Right. And then another response is that tons of people go out and buy guns every time Obama opens his mouth about gun control and gun safety, making me wonder whether it's all kind of moot because there's so many firearms out there that these regulations – would have a minimal effect anyway. <laughs> well, it's likely that the people buying guns in response to the things already own guns. So the the actual level of gun proliferation, I actually think, is like pretty low. Right. All right. right. That makes me feel better. On a more positive note in favor of more gun regulation, did you guys see this um, interesting evidence from Connecticut versus Missouri where Connecticut has tightened gun restrictions and gun deaths have dropped by, I think, 40%? And in Missouri... Gun laws loosened and gun deaths went up by 27%. So, you know, there's starting to be this empirical evidence that this kind of state to state difference can actually have a real impact. Did the researchers disaggregate the gun deaths? So, is this, is this a reduction in gun deaths by crime, by accident, by suicide? I thought it was a composite, okay. but we should check. One thing in defense of those who are outraged at what the president proposed is that there is a a debate, and I tried to wade through it and couldn't get quite all the way to the b- bottom of it. But the president, when he talks about online gun sales, seems to have uh, suggested that there that it's a lot easier to buy for felons to buy guns online than maybe it is for those who are on the other side of this. From him, they say, well, that's he's arguing they're in bad faith. But after reading about. 2,000 words on it, I uh, I got interrupted and never went back to it. <laughs> <laughs> what a shocking confession. <laughs> well, I mean, I just don't want people to say, like, I know I could come to an actual conclusion at the, to the bottom of it. Gotcha. All right. I'm going to wrap up our second topic there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. For our third topic, we have a guest, Jacob Weisberg. Hey, Jacob. Welcome. Hey, Emily. Thanks. And you are the author of a new book, Ronald Reagan, which is the latest entry in the American President series that Time Books and Holt publishes. The editors of the series are Arthur Schlesinger Jr. and Sean Willens, and it has a very august group of contributors who you have now joined. So Ronald Reagan, I mean, he's someone we have so much familiarity with, and yet I feel like he's sort of this gauzy figure to us. And I just wanted to start by asking you what it was like to spend a lot of time thinking about him and reading his words. It seems like that was one of the main ways that you did the research for your book. Well, I love doing it, Emily. He's a Reagan is a great American character, and I feel like you know my whole adult life I've had some kind of relationship with him, and this was a chance to really go back and assess my views of Reagan and and other people's views of Reagan. Uh, a friend of mine on Facebook reminded me that in 1980, in at my high school, I played Ronald Reagan in our high school debate. It was meant but that to was be. not because I supported Ronald Reagan. It was because there was not a single person in the progressive school I went to in Chicago <laughs> who was in favor of Reagan, and I had to do it as a devil's advocate stand it. Um, so you know, my, when Reagan was in office. I was not a sympathizer. Looking back on it now, I think there's an argument, even from a liberal perspective, that he was a much better president than I would have given him credit for at the time. By the way, we should just interject that this um, there is so much to say about Ronald Reagan, but Jacob had to do it in a nice, tidy, sharp volume, which is a much harder skill. At first, I thought that Gail Collins had the tough job because she had to write about William Henry Harrison in this series, and he was only president for 30 hours, yeah. 30 days. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's like, oh, what happened? You know, there's not much to write about. But that's not the skill. The skill is here's somebody that's such a vast thing, and to bring it into such a a tidy package is a real writing talent, so we should uh, acknowledge that. Gail had the opposite problem. She said that nothing was left on the cutting room floor. <laughs> she used every piece of information at her disposal, but here it really was an exercise in trying to distill this story down to its essentials and getting it down to 154 pages. I'm glad you feel that's enough of an accomplishment. And oh, I my God. No, it's, you know, the old line about if I had more time, I would have written you a shorter letter. Anyway, go ahead, Emily. Well, so, Jacob, on the back cover, which I'm now stealing from, you call Ray Reagan, a transformational president. And you start making that case by pointing out that after his eight years in office, the United States was wealthier but less equal, more hostile to government, and facing a peaceful conclusion to more than 40 years of the Cold War. So why is Reagan transformational? And why is he the quintessential American hero president of the modern era from the Republicans' point of view? Well, I think the 20th century in many ways divides pretty neatly into the progressive era and the New Deal era and FDR, the expansion of government, and then the reversal of that, or at, at least the halting of that, which began with Reagan's election in 1980 and really reflected Reagan's ideology. I think conservatives gravitate to him, you know, and all the Republican candidates are invoking him all the time in Iowa and New Hampshire. They all want to be identified with him. It's hard to find a group of people who have less in common with Ronald Reagan at the level of personality, let alone views. But, you know, Reagan was the successful conservative par excellence. At one level, he united his party. He was a strong leader. He got reelected. But I think more significantly, he framed the ideological argument of the party, which remains at core his argument. It's about cutting taxes. It's about reducing the size of government. It's about having a strong defense. And of course, there are tensions, if not contradictions, among those three things, which Reagan uh, avoided more than he dealt with them. But those are still the contradictions of contemporary conservatives, that they want those things, and those things may not be entirely compatible. And where did his political philosophy come from? I mean, I grew up with a lot of disdain for Ronald Reagan and underestimating him as any sort of intellectual force. But when you put it as you just did, it seems like he gets credit, maybe not for coming up with those ideas, but certainly for um, championing them. And, And he must have had some sense of where they came from. You must have had to figure that out. 
Yeah, I ended up with a lot of respect for Reagan as a kind of original mind. He, he wasn't an intellectual, but he was a reader and he was a writer. And one of the things that was really revelatory to me were the political commentaries he wrote as radio commentaries, uh, which he did starting after he left uh, Sacramento as governor of California and then around his first 1976 campaign for the presidency. And they're really good. I mean, you know, I would, I would give him a column in Slate if he were still around. I mean, he argues the conservative viewpoint and his really quite original take on it in a very direct, human, relatable way. And one of the things that I found was so interesting was going back to 1962, Reagan had this idea that the Soviet Union was vulnerable. And, you know, this was a kind of unfashionable argument on, on the right. I mean, the neoconservatives who surrounded Reagan believed that the Soviet Union was sort of impregnable and we were around forever. And he just thought communism was stupid. I mean, he thought it violated human nature. He didn't think people would live like that. There were certainly no people he wanted, he knew, would ever want to live like that. And the communists he knew in Hollywood, he thought, were kind of stupid too. And he had this kind of common sense reaction that this thing can't last. And he was on the right, I think, probably the only person making that argument at that time. So you've already kind of debunked one of the myths, this idea that he was kind of an amiable dunce. You know, he, he did have a, a long period where he was um, thinking through these ideas and where he at least had to think them through enough to write those radio scripts. What about as a president? You know, a great president, when you talk to people in the Obama administration, they say, everybody who works for him knows the three things they want to do. And with Reagan, it was shrink government and, you know, beat the commies. Really, it could be just like down to two. So when Reagan wasn't around, people knew what to do. They knew what they were trying to do. And with Obama, you never quite know. So that's the kind of positive version. The other is like he was out to lunch. It was all being delegated to other people. Where did you come down on that? Well, I think, you know, if the liberal myth is that Reagan was like a dump cough, the conservative myth, I think, is that Reagan came in with this strategy and applied it and it worked. And I make an argument that in relation to the Soviets, the first term and second term were, were radically different. Reagan was mm -hmm. almost two different presidents in the two terms. And in the first term, he pursued this defense buildup, a nuclear buildup. There was no dialogue with the Soviet Union, although, although he wanted one. And in the second term, he came back and became this apostle of really radical disarmament. I mean, he, he wanted to get rid of all nuclear weapons, which in some ways was a crazy idea, but it was certainly a radical idea and well, arguably, to the left of what anybody on the Democratic side was arguing at the time. And I think what I give Reagan credit for is improvisation around a theme. Mm -hmm. The theme was he wanted to make the world safer. He hated nuclear weapons. He wanted to resist the Soviets. But when what he tried in the first term, which was confrontational, didn't work, he really switched gears and tried accommodation and supported Gorbachev when other people on the right were saying he's a phony, yeah. it's not for real. And so I think I give him a lot more credit for pragmatism and for political realism. And I think you could make the same argument around his economic policies too. Yeah, and people at the time, conservatives were saying that Reagan was – it was an apostasy for him to embrace Gorbachev and that this was – that he had like – totally gone off the deep end and was pursuing him. I mean, he's quite vicious what they said about him. They were all against him. I mean, uh, George Will, Nixon, Kissinger. I mean, they thought he'd lost his marbles. It's yeah. funny now because it's kind of heresy if someone says, oh, well, there were signs of Alzheimer's, you know, in his, in his second term. In fact, I think there were pretty good signs starting in, at some point in 1986. But he hadn't lost his marbles. He disagreed with them. Yeah. And he disagreed at that point with almost everybody who worked on those issues in his own administration. Yeah. And the one person who supported him who mattered was George Shultz, mm -hmm. Secretary of State. And if there's someone who should have gotten the Nobel Peace Prize who didn't get it, who deserved it, it's Shultz. Because Shultz figured out how to translate this radical, unexpected new Reagan who wanted to get rid of all nuclear weapons to the bureaucracy and to come up with a plan for starting to implement disarmament to the extent that it was possible that it was going to happen. Jacob, are there significant parts of Reagan's legacy that you look back on and feel are having really negative consequences in our current political culture? I think Reagan had a blind spot about government doing good and where government was effective, he couldn't see it and didn't believe it. And I think he had a blind spot about business doing bad. He was never really in any way criticized corporations or, or big business or, or, 
or banks. And he sort of believed the one was incapable of good, the other was incapable of evil. And of course, both things are, are vast oversimplifications. I think a lot of that dates back I got really interested in this question of when Reagan became Reagan. You know, Reagan was a liberal Democrat. He was an FDR Democrat growing up and into the 50s. He, he didn't switch his party registration until 1962. The period when he switched from left to right was the 1950s when he was working as a spokesman for General Electric and hosting the GE Theater, not the GE Podcast Theater, which um, Slate was involved in with Panoply, but the GE tele Television Theater. And, um, you know, I think he was I think he was deeply, deeply influenced by that early corporate perspective, which favored was anti-regulatory, wanted government to get out of the way, thought taxes were too high. And he really in that period, it fit with a lot of reading he was doing at the same time of Hayek and Buckley and Whitaker Chambers and a lot of other conservative literature that was popular then. But I think that corporate perspective really influenced him and more than anything else was what took him from liberal Democrat to fairly extreme Cold War conservative. This is a well-quoted thing when Obama was running. He said he wanted to be a president like Reagan. He wanted to change kind of the, the terms and, and conditions of American politics. But I think there's a pretty strong case that, that he hasn't, that Reagan still is sort of the overarching figure in contemporary American politics. So how much do you think we're still living in the age of Reagan? Or, or is is the worm turning and are we moving towards like a different kind of consensus about government and the role of the state and so on and so forth? Jamal, I think that's a great question. I think Reagan represented a reversal. And I don't think Obama has represented a reversal of the reversal. But in some ways, he's gotten us back to a stalemate. You know, Obamacare was the first really, really significant expansion of the federal government's role to happen since Reagan. There are a lot of little things, but that's the first big thing. And that's something that liberals were trying to do since Truman, have some kind of national health care policy. So I think you could argue that now we're at a kind of standoff about the role of government. And conservatives are certainly still pushing in a Reagan direction. And liberals are pushing back in an expansionist direction. And nobody's really winning right now. There's no, there's no agreement on anything. So do you see a straight line from Reagan to the repeals in the Republican-led House of Obamacare, which there's another one this week that is going to require the president's veto? The difference is, again, it's back to the point, Emily, I think about pragmatism and compromise. You know, there's a great a quote I really like from Reagan that he uh, said to one of his aides when he was governor of, of California. He said, anytime I can get 70 percent of what I'm asking for from a legislative body from the other party, I'll take it, you know, and then I'll keep pushing from there. Reagan liked working with the other side. He made friends with Tip O'Neill. Tip O'Neill was, uh, you know, in some ways resisted him and in some ways caved to this sort of over overpowering force. But Reagan didn't personalize politics beyond a certain point, and he didn't take the perspective that politics was zero-sum, that anything Democrats got was bad for Republicans. And I think the kind of standoff we have right now is based on this kind of somewhat faulty interpretation of what Reaganism was and what Reagan did. I think Reagan you know, was a compromiser and a pragmatist, and he wanted to push the ball a few yards down the field. He didn't have to score a touchdown every time. Jacob, thanks so much for coming. The book is called and is about Ronald Reagan. And as we have said, you can eat it up pretty quickly. <laughs> thanks to all three of you. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right. Cocktail chatter. Jamel, what do you got? I have two things. And one is a relatively recent movie. It's a pretty recent movie. And the other is a book. I watch a lot of movies. Um, I don't watch very much TV, and I don't have cable. And so when I say I watch a lot of movies, I, I specifically mean I watch, like, 
five or six movies a week. That's is... a lot. <laughs> I watch like wow, 0.2 movies a week. The way... Wait, and you do all that cooking too? How do you do it? And so photography about... and like eight other cool ventures. The thing about watching a lot of movies is you just have to accept that you're never going to watch a single movie in a single sitting. And so oftentimes it would be like, oh, I can catch 45 minutes of this and then I'll set it aside Ooh. and watch another 45 minutes later. And mm-hmm. as long as you can kind of just like, as long as you're really watching it and paying attention to everything, it's very easy to do. That's how you maybe maybe there's two or three movies a week that I actually sit down and watch all the way through. But the rest are kind of just like chunks here or there. One that I watched uh, all the way through and that I thought was just delightful was a documentary called Fresh Dressed, and it's about the history of hip-hop fashion going back to the 70s and into the modern period. If, if you like music documentaries, uh, if, you, if you are fascinated by sort of fashion and fashion culture, it's just a really neat look at all the things that went into developing the styles that would become known as hip-hop fashion from 70s-era gang wear, which I have to admit is very cool, Lots of leather jackets with like elaborate gang insignia. Are you um, buying some? I mean, no, it's not the kind of thing I, I would wear. But it's it's if you've seen the war, like the Warriors in that regards, the, the film The Warriors is actually like surprisingly true to what people actually wore. Like I said, it's cool. Um, and it's just it's like an hour and forty minutes, and just a lot of fun to watch. And it's on Netflix. And, and now that I'm thinking about Netflix, another movie I will recommend. Um, and this is going to sound insane, but but trust me, listeners, I'm not I'm not insane here. Is the fourth sequel to the movie Universal Soldier called Universal Soldier: Day of Reckoning? Now, typically, fourth sequels to B movies are awful, but this one oh, is directed. Oh no! Why would you ever say that? <laughs> uh, this one is directed by a guy named John Hyam, who is a bit of an art director, and Day of Reckoning is very much this bizarre hybrid of a slasher flick, a kung fu movie, or or sort of a modern-day martial arts movie, and a very conceptual art movie about memory and identity. I will say it's very violent, and people find it objectionable in many ways, but as sort of an exploration of, of what it means to have memory and for that to form the basis of your identity, it is it is really compelling, strangely compelling. And then there's also really awesome and brutal fights. So there's that too for that's your thing did you promise us a book also when you started talking there is a book there is a book <laughs> and i can the book is really short okay and that the book is not short this my comment about the book is short it's just <laughs> that i have i have been reading um kind of rereading ulysses s grant's memoirs and- oh, <laughs> favorite of david plotz <laughs> okay so david plotz literally brings up those memoirs like every month and i refuse to read them what do you well, have well, to say about them uh, Plotz is absolutely right. They oh, are, God. they are, it is a genuine page turner. Grant is a great writer, a great clear headed, you know, often very funny, always very modest writer. And when he does delve into the explicitly political, he always has great gems of insight. And I think there are parts in his memoirs where he writes about the meaning of the Civil War better and more clearly than anyone ever has. If you can get your hands on a, a, a nice, a hardback cover of Grant's memoirs, I, I really recommend that you do. Reading them has been a lot of fun and um, a real uh, great exploration of a guy who I think is a very underrated president. I I mean, I haven't gone anywhere close to the depth that uh, Jamel and, and Plotz have, but I have read portions of it. And even the beginning, I mean, I was having this discussion with the kids about how you can read a book where even if the plot's no good, the, each page can be exciting. In this case, the plot is great. But <laughs> but you can read a single page and think, wow, that is well-written, beautifully phrased, interestingly uh, expressed. It's it's So it's you don't have to buy, go in for the full thing. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to read just on its own. Well, I wish that as usual, I could just make fun of you guys and your war history. But my chatter this week is shockingly about a war book. It is so good that when my vacation ended, I had to stay up really late reading it. Have you guys heard of this book, Matterhorn, about the Vietnam War? No. It is really excellent. It's by Carl Marlantes. I hope I'm saying his name right. He was in Vietnam himself, and it's... A fictional book that's based, it's pretty clear um, from from reading, on his experience of the war. And it came out in 2010, so it took him a really long time to write. It was also a total page-turner, and I just felt like 
I learned a lot about what it feels like to actually be in combat in the Marines in Vietnam. It was as vivid as any movie about Vietnam I've seen. I really startlingly recommend it. So that's my chatter. John, how about you? Uh, My chatter is about an article that was in The Atlantic by uh, Ed Young, which is about the pauses in conversations. Psycholinguists have measured the pauses that we allow to take place as we hand back and forth the baton in a conversation where the right to speak flips back and forth. And it turns out it's 200 milliseconds is the typical gap between this experience where one person talks and then the next person talks. And the way this piece is written, it makes the case, and pretty persuasively, that basically this is our great trick. And just to put in context what 200 milliseconds is, that's the time runners take to respond to a starting pistol. 600 uh, milliseconds is the time it takes to retrieve a word from memory. So the point of all of this is that basically what we do in conversation is that we're listening to what a person says, but we're also preparing the response, and we have this kind of automatic two-brain system that operates where we listen to what they say, but also prepare the response so that we can give it immediately when the other person finishes talking. Now, obviously, there are some times where we don't respond that quickly. And apparently, across cultures, it's roughly this time period is roughly the same, except one one of the findings was that in Japan, the, sometimes the pause between conversations is seven milliseconds. Danish speakers are 470 milliseconds, which is slower than the average. And then the Japanese, it got down to seven. Wow. And that's not for, that's just for some Japanese speakers. But anyway, I guess the point is this notion of a split brain where we're both listening and preparing the response. So think about that the next time you're in a nice leisurely conversation. This was done uh, by by watching sort of relaxed conversations, not people who were in some kind of heated exchange. Were we in a nice, relaxed conversation or a heated exchange today, you guys? I think it was pretty relaxed. Yeah, I call this leisurely. Yeah. All right, and I like how you both instantly responded. I didn't even feel like a single millisecond elapsed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're at the end of the show. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash gabfest. You can email us at gabfest at slate.com. You can go find us on Facebook or on Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. And if you're inspired to leave a comment while you're there, that is helpful for us. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our intern is L. Bisgard Church. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Jamel Bowie and John Dickerson, I... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.